Well, good morning. Good to see you all here. It's a great day. Um, I'm going to start a new series today, uh, or more accurately, restart. Uh, let me just ask, uh, how many of you were not attending Lion and Lamb regularly in the fall of 2010? Please raise your hand. Okay, yeah, quite a few. Uh, I, at that time, I, uh, I started a series on the Beatitudes and uh, got through those uh, and decided that I would like to go through the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which presented a bit of a quandary. Uh, you know, been through it before. A lot of you have heard, uh, you know, one Beatitude a, a month and and, uh, but it's an important part of the sermon. Uh, and so I've tried to compromise here. And what we're going to do uh, over a relatively short time, and for me that's a few months, is review in summary the Beatitudes because they are so important. And then we hope to go on to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount uh, and, uh, and, and mine its riches. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is the longest exposition of Jesus' teaching that we have in the Bible. It covers three chapters. Uh, and Christy doesn't like me to talk about this, but my dad died when he was just a little bit older than me. Uh, now, my mom is 94 and still kicking, so I'm not sure where this is going to end up. It's going to take a while. Uh, I'll just say I'll teach as long as I am able. Uh, and we'll see what happens. Uh, first of all, the Sermon on the Mount is a source of a lot of our Christianese or a lot of quips or idioms that are used in our culture. Uh, you know, you've heard the term salt of the earth. Uh, left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. Or the all-time favorite, judge not lest you be judged. But we've got to ask the question, was Jesus really just into one-liners, you know, sound bites? I think not. Because usually when he teaches, he goes deep to the core. And a cursory reading of the Sermon on the Mount, which you've probably all done, uh, and especially some of the more familiar topics or, or passages, uh, may not do it justice because... It is rich. It is rich. Um, it has long, this sermon has long been a source of controversy among different uh, segments of the, the body of Christ. Among some uh, liberal theologians, uh, they view the Sermon on the Mount as a way to gain salvation. In other words, it's the gospel, uh, the sum and substance of how to become saved. Others see it not as gospel, but law, and conclude that Jesus is making clear the true sense of the law as opposed to the distortions of the scribes and rabbis and Pharisees. Still others see the spiritual truth in the sermon, but they pass on application today because it's just too hard. You know, when somebody hits me, I simply cannot turn the other cheek. Still others, uh, along, among a group called dispensationalists, uh, which is a, a view that affects a lot of my, my beliefs, a few of them consider the Sermon on the Mount to be a constitution intended only for the subjects 
of the future millennial kingdom. And it, therefore, it cannot apply to present-day believers. Now, I grew up in a mainline, rather liberal denomination, and then I was exposed to dispensationalism and then later Reformed tradition. Uh, so I've been influenced by these. Uh, however, I simply personally cannot accept any of these views of the Sermon on the Mount. I, I don't see it as gospel or law, and I simply cannot shake the feeling that when somebody in these latter two groups that says it doesn't apply today, when they say that, they're basically making Jesus say, hey, I present for your viewing pleasure this lush green pasture. But don't touch, don't graze, because it's not for you, you stupid sheep. Now, understand, I know that I'm a stupid sheep under God, but we have to take a look at this. Uh, whatever Jesus, Jesus intended about application, which we'll probably figure out when we get to heaven, I believe that this passage is nonetheless profitable for doctrine, for instruction in righteousness, for correction and reproof. That seems to be what Paul tells us, that all Scripture is. Uh, I'm not the only one who believes that. Uh, George Lawler, a dispensationalist himself, and a professor of Greek and Bible at uh, Cedarville College in the 1970s, concluded that it does apply. It has application today. And he observed this, that the passage is not basic fundamental law. Law cannot produce the state of blessedness laid out in the text. Rather, the quality of life described is the necessary product of grace alone. Jesus states the outward legal requirements of the law and then carries his listener beyond the letter of the law to the true spirit and intent of the law. How? Well, that's exactly the point. Because we ourselves cannot fulfill the law. Only Christ can. We can't live up to the lifestyle portrayed by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in our own strength. That's why we so desperately need him. So... The life of the believer described by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is a life of grace and glory which comes from God alone, not by our own efforts. To make this quality of life the product of human effort is to overestimate man's capacity and to underestimate man's depravity. To relegate this entire, entire passage to a, a millennial lifestyle as the hyper-Calvinists do, is to rob the church of its greatest statement of true Christian living. And we might add, for this latter group, it might be helpful to point out that the world of the Sermon on the Mount cannot be restricted to a future millennial kingdom because it includes tax collectors, thieves, unjust officials, hypocrites, and false prophets, not the kind of folk you'd see hanging out in the millennium. Uh, but Jesus made it clear that the Spirit of Christ goes beyond the outward demand of the law. The Christian is not under the law, but is to be above the law. Not in the sense that we think of corrupt politicians ignoring the law, but held to a higher standard, which is the spirit of the law. Paul says, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So in the Sermon on the Mount, what we see here is Jesus teaching the life 
of a born-again believer. It's not a way of salvation. It's not for those who are under the law because it obviously goes beyond the law. It presents Christian discipleship which can be wrought in the soul of an individual only by the power of God. Instead of instructing how to be saved, it tells us what it is like to be saved to be a true disciple. Virtually every section of the Sermon on the Mount is repeated in substance elsewhere throughout the New Testament. The main point I'm trying to get to here is we've got to stop thinking of excuses for not applying what we read about in the Sermon on the Mount. We've all got something vital to learn and to apply from this message. Let's get down to the message itself. If we look at the context here, if we read Matthew 4, the passage before the sermon, and then Luke 6, which is a parallel passage, Jesus' ministry has started. He's chosen his 12 disciples. He's out healing and casting out demons. And he's developed quite a following of believers, referred to as disciples. Verse 1 in chapter 5 says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. The first phrase, and seeing the multitudes. Is that just an appendage, just a preface? Or does it mean something? What does it tell us? Why is it there? Well, a good way to look at Scripture is let Scripture interpret Scripture. And if you would turn to Matthew 9, we see there a similar passage. Starting in verse 35, uh, it says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And then in verse 36, seeing the multitudes, he had compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And when, when he looked on the multitudes, it seems to me that he saw lost sheep, some in physical misery, some in emotional distress, but all in danger of an eternity in hell. So he had compassion for them. What do you and I see when we see the multitudes? In my job, you know, when I get out of my office, I go sometimes downtown to the courthouse or to government buildings, sometimes uh, to, to other office buildings, a small town sometime, walking down the street. And I see a lot of the multitudes. And I've got to ask myself, do I see them as Jesus sees them? I've got to admit, that's quite, quite a challenge. Yet, when Jesus addressed his disciples after the resurrection, he told them in John 20, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Uh, this kind of implies that we are to carry out the work that he started, the Great Commission. And if we follow his examples we will see lost souls with compassion. If you would, keep your finger there in Matthew 9 and turn over, over to uh, John 4. And here the apostles are trying to get Jesus to take a break and eat something. 
Uh, but he responds that he has food that they don't even know about. And he just baffles them. And then he says, starting in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his works. Do not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. In other words, we've got time, we can put it off. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. If you go back to Matthew 9, you see this harvest analogy repeated in verse 37, where it says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to seek out workers into his harvest. Seems to me that God gave his disciples something to do with a sense of urgency to look with compassion on the fields of the lost. In other words, the multitudes. Now, some of us will sow as disciples, some will reap, but we all have a vital role to play in bringing in the harvest. Look at verse 2 of Matthew 5. And he opened his mouth and taught them. Well, who did he teach? Well, if you look at the context, it's clear he's teaching his disciples. But who did that include? We oftentimes in in Scripture see the the word disciples referring to the twelve. But here it's clear that he's talking about lots of people who had started following him. So there's no indication here that this teaching applies only to those who were there as his twelve disciples uh, in that day. The word disciple means a learner, but one who has some discipline. Okay, not a novice, but somebody who has some experience and some wisdom to know that they have not got it all figured out. That is a true learner, has a learner's spirit. That is what a disciple is. But Jesus saw something else. Luke 6, as I said, is a parallel account of this event. And in Luke 6, it says in verse 20, and turning his gaze... Some versions say he lifted up his eyes towards his disciple. Again, does that phrase mean anything? If we merge Luke 6 with Matthew 5, the sense would be that having lifted up his eyes unto his disciples, having opened his mouth, he started to to teach them. Now, as insignificant as this may seem, we can gain something from this. The Greek for lifted up his eyes denotes definite and particular action, not incidental action. So Jesus intentionally looked at his his, his disciples and he saw something in them. I suspect he saw the genuine spirit of all those disciples whom he would call out of the masses of unbelievers and disingenuous followers throughout the future. So he taught these disciples how to follow him if they wish to do his work. Lord willing, we will gather through a study on the Sermon on the Mount, first, the internal state of mind and heart, which is the result of the regenerative call of God, 
In other words, salvation by grace, which is an essential for true discipleship. Then as a result of that inward regeneration, an outward conduct or demeanor will naturally follow. That's the witness and the evidence of true discipleship. If the Word of God does not influence how one lives, then it probably did not take root on the inside. Now, we all know that other people, people out there, hear, they see, but they don't believe. They remain stubborn in their unbelief. So let's consider them. How can those who don't believe comprehend teaching like Blessed are the poor in spirit, those that mourn, the meek, the reviled, the persecuted. To them, this is craziness. I mean, I can hear them saying, you know, if that's the good news, who needs tragedy and pain? I mean, this is not an attractive lifestyle for anyone. If you don't understand, you don't believe. Calling such conditions blessed is the exact, exact opposite of what the world sees in them. That helps us understand that the Sermon on the Mount is not gospel. It's for believers to incorporate and make a part of their daily walk as true disciples then and now. As we just finished the um, series on reaching out to the poor, we understood you know, some of the ways and that we do that and how we can do that and why we should do that. At the same time, we need, we need to remember that God loves the world, the whole world, even the well-off. Sometimes it's the rich, the materially well-off, who are miserable because of their empty, purposeless lives. And so this is a message that can be applied to everybody. But if we become too involved or engrossed in our own problems and our comforts, we will never reach out to the lost. But Jesus set the example by going out to the multitudes. And we've got to ask ourselves, can we do anything less with our lives? If we fail to see people as Jesus does, I think it's because we have not developed godly compassion. Jesus had compassion for those who were weak in faith, and so he reached out to save them. He fed the 5,000 to take care of their physical needs, and then he addressed their spiritual needs. We've got to find a way to help people to meet their needs, yes, but we needed to move on to reach their hearts for Christ. So in essence, these first two verses say that Jesus saw the multitudes. He had compassion on them. He went up into the mountain, sat down, looked to his, if you will, working material, his team, and he taught them, taught the disciples, which includes you and me, what our lives should look like in order to show compassion for the multitudes, the people who are lost. So, how is that? Well, let's get into the Beatitudes here. And for the first one, Jesus uses an exceptional word in an exceptional way for an exceptional message. The Greek for the word blessed, I think you have it on your sheet there, makarioi, describes an oasis in the desert, one who prospers, one who, but one who's unaffected by the world, as an oasis might appear. It seems to designate an inner state or condition unaffected by outside forces. 
So the word blessed in the Bible is the state of those whose heart is indwelt by God and who walk with him day by day. So the first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, looking at this grammatically, in the Greek, the verbs after blessed are or shall be do not appear. The Greek conveys the notion that we are now blessed and we shall be blessed forevermore. Now, in the past, we have, I think, touched upon a few times a thing called the prosperity gospel. You know, if you have enough faith, you'll have all the money and all the good health that you'll ever need. Uh, But Jesus, interestingly, preaches a poverty gospel, at least in a sense. Now, having said that, and we'll come back, whatever, whatever your understanding of this is, we've got to get back to the understanding that Jesus had, that it's not wrong to be rich or to be poor. In fact, whatever state we find ourselves may be just where God wants us to teach us valuable lessons on either side. James reminds us, that we should not show respect for something just because of their good appearance, nor should we show disrespect for someone because of their lack of the same. And when we do so, we make distinctions among ourselves, we become judges with evil thoughts, and God, and God chose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those that love him. Now, we know from our study that there are many causes for poverty, some not at all the fault of those in poverty. However, the Proverbs make it clear that a couple of the reasons for poverty are lack of wisdom and lack of effort. The words fool, sloth, and sluggard might come to mind if you read that book. In fact, the Proverbs tell us that those who prosper are usually those who are wise and industrious. So make that distinction. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, gives us a balance. And there it says, Do not give me poverty or riches. Feed me with my allotted bread, lest I become satisfied and act deceptively and say, Who is the Lord? In other words, i got all I need. I don't need you, God. Or, lest I become poor and steal and harm in the name of my God. You know, there's downsides to both poverty and riches. The rich are tempted to rely upon their uncertain wealth. And the poor are tempted to covet, if not steal. Now, what does the word poor mean in this verse? The Greek word there is ptokos, coming from the Greek verb ptoso, which means a shrinking away from, cowering, cringing. It describes someone slinking around crouching here and there, begging for alms or food, like Lazarus was in Luke 16, where it says that he laid at his gate covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Now, there's another word for poor in in Scripture. uh, That is panasis. And panasis poor is the kind of poor who are poor to the extent that they have to work hard to draw themselves out of poverty. The Patokos poor, on the other hand, 
cannot work, so they must beg. These people over here, the Panasis poor, they might need a little help, but if they don't get moving, they might need a little swift kick in the rear to get moving, because they can do it. These people cannot. The Patokos poor cannot work, so they must depend. They must beg. So why is the word patosos used here for poor in this passage? One Greek scholar said it was to convey Christ's diagnosis of man. He is empty, poor, helpless. He cannot work out his own salvation. He is patokos, not panesis, poor. He needs mercy from outside himself. This is the condition of fallen man. No man, no one from his own level can help him. His help must come from someone who is superior, from above. In other words, from God. So we've got to understand that to be filled with Christ is to be empty of self and the pride of the human spirit. Believers are blessed and we realize our complete emptiness and need for total dependence upon Him when we become, literally, spiritual beggars with Him. The good news is that we can face trials, temptations, poverty, pain, even death. Men, remember the martyrs? We can face all those things without fear or anxiety. This is what is known in uh, doctrine as the uh, doctrine of depravity of man because man really has nothing to offer God that will equal, earn, or merit his righteousness and his favor. Paul confirms the bad news in Romans 3. There is none righteous, no, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now, you and I, we say, hey, Joe over there, he's a good guy. Now, Kent, he's a bum. All right? Now, understand, we're speaking relative to one another. All right? This came to my attention one time uh, at home. Uh, if you've been over to our place, you know we ba- live in a basically a, a white house. Okay? And when you live in a white house, it's just white. Okay? You kind of get used to it. Okay? Uh, and no big deal. It's just white. But one day after a heavy snowfall, I had to get out early to, to do some shoveling. And I was shoveling along, and I, and I looked up at my white house, and I said, oh my goodness, the contrast between that pure white snow and my dingy house, you know, with all the scuffs and the the mold or the mildew or whatever it is, and the little things, the little imperfections. And it helped me understand our righteousness, as good as we might be, compared to God. Okay? You might have a really upstanding, righteous guy, maybe a pastor type, but please understand, compared to God's righteousness, he's like the rest of us. He's really just a kind of a filthy bum, relatively speaking. I'm not trying to be negative here. I'm just trying to help us understand the concept. That's the extent of our poverty. We have a debt so great we cannot repay. We are Potosos poor. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And for this verse to make any sense at all, we've got to take it as a whole. The poor are not blessed simply because they're poor. 
Rather, it is the poverty of spirit, the inner man, that is blessed. And when we accept deep within our own, with, our own inadequacies in humble submission, then we have what God loves, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. This poverty of spirit is the first mark of true discipleship. It's the prerequisite for all the other Beatitudes. Spiritual beggars have abandoned pride and self-sufficiency and rely totally on God for their support. Those people are in a position to assume the mournful, meek, hungry, merciful, pure, and peaceful dispositions we find in the other Beatitudes. The poor in spirit don't insist on their own way and demand their own rights. They they don't grasp for all that is theirs with stubborn refusal to sacrifice for others. They're not fixated on their own gain, but rather God's purposes and His goal. In other words, God's best. Our hands have to be empty before they can be filled by Him. We've got nothing there. It's not something we do in and of ourselves. We don't empty ourselves. We we don't make ourselves poor. But this is evidence of God's work in us. That we see ourselves for who we really are. We've got nothing to bring Him. Nothing to lay claim to Him. Nothing to cause God to act graciously on our behalf. It is all His mercy. Just His grace. So how does God help us come to this state? Well, a variety of ways. Certainly His Word. Sometimes He uses the Holy Spirit to convict us. Sometimes it can be through a tragedy. Uh, Sometimes it can be simply sin that has come to the surface in our lives. Whatever it is, God uses these things and these events to bring us to Him. What's the end result of being poor in spirit? To be clear, we don't earn a place in the kingdom of God. Rather, we become poor in spirit when we know that we cannot earn entrance into that kingdom. It is only by the grace of God that we're allowed in. When we understand that we've got nothing to give, we become beggars in spirit who stoop before God with empty hands and empty hearts. We have the kingdom. It is ours We have it now gift-wise and we will have it in eternity. Because He looks down on us in our emptiness, in His infinite love and mercifully allows us to partake. What example do we have of someone being poor in spirit? None better than the one described in Philippians 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's the important spirit. Um, Let's move on to verse 4. And here it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, you just kind of know that uh, these two don't go together. What do being sorrowful and blessing have to do with one another? They, just, they shouldn't coexist. But in what sense is the Bible trying to tell us that we can discover joy and comfort through sorrow? Well, let's take a look. The word for mourning there is pentheo. And that's significant because there are nine Greek words for sorrow or mourning or grief. And pentheo is the most intense internal grieving, usually without notice by the outside world. Next, mourning over what? Well, the verse doesn't tell us. And we would often think, well, of course, I mourn when I lose a loved one or some personal tragedy or financial collapse or something like that. Uh, we, We might mourn over those things, certainly. But if we look at the context of the Sermon on the Mount, we got to say, you know, the, the primary application here is really, most likely, mourning over our sin. The poor in spirit, what we just studied, the poor in spirit will be sensitive to their own spin, sin and will mourn over it. Now, how does the world approach this issue of recognizing sin? Well, have you ever seen somebody who's grieving over what happens as the result of sin, like the, the kid who's caught with his hand in the cookie jar, and his weeping and wailing is because he knows he's going to the bathroom for a talk, right? And that's the case with a lot of people. They are sorrowful over the consequences of sin. Jesus here redirects us away from the consequences of sin, although they will come. But he wants us to, instead to focus on the sin of itself our transgression against a holy and perfectly righteous and just god that's why we are able to through our mourning through our sorrow for the sin itself move to contrition repentance and seeking forgiveness from a very completely, absolutely loving God. Now, this is not just the sins that are apparent to those around you. It includes the secret sins, the sins that we think we're going to get away with because nobody sees them. Well, let me ask, are there any sins that God doesn't know about? You know, David said, cleanse me from my secret sins. The Greek uh, word for mourn here is a participle which represents linear action. A little grammatical here. This is opposed to punctilier action, which think of a punctuation like a period, an action that is done, it's over with. Or uh, perfect action, which is an action which is done but has continuing effect. Like I throw a rock in the, in the lake and the ripples go out. But linear action is repeated, regular, continued action. 
And so to be a true mourner in this sense, a Christian must continually adopt an attitude of mourning over sin. Martin Luther, when he tacked his 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg door, had the first one as follows. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So, how do we get to a place of mourning for sin? When a Christian faces up to his transgressions, mourning is really more than just saying, I'm sorry. Uh, how do we get there? How do we get there? Well, I think we can learn some lessons from the, uh, the story about the prodigal son. I'm not going to read it because I think most of you probably have. You're familiar with it. But I want to try to gain some insights from this. You know, there's an old saying that says, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? And so it's always a good idea to think ahead, okay, and to avoid bad decisions, to expose and reject false ideas. And what happened here? The son, probably working in his dad's field, you know, slaving away, looked up and see his buddies over there in the town having a great time. And what do you suppose he was starting to think? Man, if I could just get out from underneath my dad's rule, his control, I could do whatever I want. You know, I could sit around. I could sleep in. You know, today we might say, you know, I could watch TV or video games or Facebook all day long. It would be heaven. And that's exactly what he decided to do, except much worse. There's a little pesky issue here of how does he maintain that lifestyle. He took care of that by simply taking advance on his inheritance. Now, do you think before he made that decision that he might have had some thoughts about his dad? That maybe his dad was old-fashioned, outmoded, old-school, you know, don't believe in his values, so I'm going to go out because I've got my own. Well, there is a natural tendency, parents of teenagers know this, that they, young people tend to reject or resist the values of the older generation. Do you think? And to be honest, let's be fair here. Being old doesn't mean you're necessarily wise. Doesn't mean you're always right. Okay? You're certainly not omniscient. Okay? Nor does it mean you're, you always make the right decisions. I have made lots of mistakes and I will continue to do so. Uh, on the other hand, older people tend to have something that young people don't. Experience. Okay? And sometimes they've learned some lessons in life that young people haven't been exposed to yet. There's another old saying that says, learning from the mistakes of others is the cheapest education you will ever get. Okay? And we know that the prodigal son had the idea that life without constraints of his father's household could fulfill all of his desires, a.k.a. lust. Mourning over his attitude towards his father was the farthest thing from his mind as long as as he had a way to sustain that lifestyle. He could indulge himself in the pleasures of a season and enjoy his friends, right? His lifestyle dissipated 
his spiritual as well as his financial future. Because remember, he used up his inheritance. He probably didn't do his father's reputation much good. And while when we read the story, we're overwhelmed with the basic message, which is the forgiveness of the father, we sometimes forget that he committed gross sins and there were undoubtedly lifelong consequences to that. So whether you're young or old, a good idea would be to take an honest look, an evaluation, and measure your ideas and your values against the only true standard, which is God's Word. Wise counsel may, not necessarily, but may come from somebody who's older and has more experience. This is easier said than done, but if young people can simply focus on the true standard, and reject the ideas that come from the culture, from the world, sometimes from your own peers, you can avoid untold amounts of pain and sorrow and regret. Second point here is we need to view trials as God's prompting or His classroom. You know, uh, prodigal son went out there, used up all his money, and God has such a great sense of timing. He sent a famine right as he ran out of money. Okay, so the prodigal son was hurting. Uh, his money went, went out the door as well as his friends. His chosen lifestyle had led him right back to the structure that he had rebelled against. He was now having to work for somebody else uh, in much more harsh conditions. And his new friends, they were just pigs. I mean, literally. That's what they were. That's who he hung out with. So it's always good, it's always a good idea to see God's purpose in how He treats us. And sometimes we're getting a little spanking along the way, and it's a good idea to respond to that. Next, we need to see our offenses through the eyes of those we have wronged or offended. You know, once these things started to happen, prodigal son began to relive his family relationships. He began to understand that he was bankrupt before God and before his father. He then determined what he would say to his father. Because he could see his offense through his father's eyes. Next, we need to recognize the cause of sin. When he returned home, the prodigal son started his confession with, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, true mourning and repentance doesn't come from being sorry for consequences, but from recognizing the cause of our sin. Usually, willful rebellion against God. David said, for I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. And finally, we need to understand that while mourning may start with worldly sorrow, to truly mourn, it's got to end with godly sorrow. He was, the prodigal son was grieved, first of all, over his deplorable conditions, but he eventually came to understand his unworthiness before God. Worldly sorrow is self-centered and focuses on the consequences of sin. Godly sorrow is concerned about how God has been offended by my sin. 
Worldly sorrow draws us away from God to despair. Godly sorrow always draws us to God for forgiveness and for reconciliation. Now, what's the end of proper mourning? Well, as you can see with the prodigal son, he came back and got the last thing he expected. He got the open arms of a loving father. Thankful to God that he had brought his son back to him. And that's pretty much what the verse says. It says, you will be comforted. The word for comforted there is the Greek parakaleo. Another form of that is paraclete. Okay? Another word for advocate. It's the word that's used in, throughout the New Testament for the Holy Spirit, the true comforter. It says in John 14, where Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, another paraclete, that he may be with you forever. This is the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be with you. This is exactly the point. This is exactly what we need to incorporate. In just a little while, we're going to do the Lord's table. And would that all of us could come before Christ with poverty of spirit and with mourning over any sin. Take care of it and then receive his forgiveness and his reconciliation. Father, we want to thank you for your love, which is greater than any love we can imagine. You loved us so much that you gave us instruction that is incomprehensible to the world. That we're to be poor in spirit, that we're to mourn over our sins. But Lord, what you give us in exchange is so wonderful and so undeserved, but yet such a blessing. We praise you and give honor to you today and ask that you would continue to work these qualities in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.